Yeah, follow her. What? What's so funny? Uh, Children's Church. This morning, folks, we are in Ruth chapter 3, and this is an interestingly controversial chapter in the Bible. This is the chapter that inspired the name of this mini-series, Scandalous Grace. In this chapter, there might be, there most certainly is, opportunity for scandal. Appearance for what appears to be a very scandalous situation between Ruth and Boaz. Before we get to that, I want to recap for those of you who have not been part of this series for the first two weeks. The first Sunday we have been in Ruth, I was talking about this idea and concept of story and how much we love good stories. And it's, it's apparent that we love good stories because of how much money we spend on books, how much we watch TV, how much we watch movies, and how we are captivated by good stories. And I told you, and I, I confess to you that, I was annoyed with this book. Because from verse 3, it's just, people died, that's a bummer. Like, what? I didn't, who was a, a, who's a Limelech? Who is that guy? Why do I care about Ruth? I don't, I'm not invested in these characters yet. And already everyone died? This is a terrible story. Why would that happen right off the bat? Who thought that was a good idea? I need some backstory. I need character development. I need to be invested in these people so that when that time of crisis, when the plot thickens, I am actually so invested, like, what is going to happen? That I feel like I am there with them experiencing what is going on. But that is not what's happening in the story. It's four chapters. It's really short. And there's even some discussion as to why it's in the Bible. But the last chapter reveals very clearly why Ruth is in the Bible. Anyways, the story of Ruth is this interesting story. Where God is able to weave together the faithful obedience of his people. To bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. We learn about this woman named Ruth. And there's a couple things in particular about her that make her stand out. First off, she's fiercely loyal and she's very bold. And the reason we know that is because she married Naomi. She married Naomi's son and Naomi's son died and still Ruth stuck with her. And that might not be that big of a deal to to most people, but she stuck with her despite leaving her homeland. See, Naomi met Ruth in the land of the Moabites. And Ruth decided to go back with Naomi back to Bethlehem, back to where the Israelites lived. So she was going to be an immigrant. She would also be a widow. And by all rights, she might also be considered an orphan because her father-in-law, the person that she kind of has any rights for existence, died as well. And then we talked about this man named Boaz, who was following these charity commands by, given by God in Deuteronomy, where where basically Boaz was following and embodying this command to let those types of people, the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows, glean off of his fields because they really have no other way to sustain their own lives. We talked about gleaning being this process where after the harvester goes and uses a scythe or whatever to cut down the wheat and puts it into chunks that there's this leftover that normally they would go back over a second time to make sure they did not miss a single stalk of wheat. But God commands people that want to be righteous and faithful to him to not go back and twice harvest the fields, but to instead be generous and to understand that there is something about this being more than enough 
that Boaz would actually survive, even though he didn't get every last little bit, every last little stalk, every little last bushel of wheat off of his land. So Boaz is seen as this righteous man who was doing something pretty, pretty incredible that, that might not be given enough credit because just before this, the reason that Naomi and Elimelech and, and their sons left this area was because of a, an incredible famine. There wasn't enough food. That was a huge focus of the story. So immediately following this famine, Boaz is being generous when I would assume, and I feel like it's a safe assumption, many were choosing to instead take as much as they could get from their fields to store in storehouses, to do that Costco run, to make sure the pantry is full and it's overflowing into the garage in case that sort of a famine strikes again. But instead, Boaz is literally embodying this idea of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving simply defined as expressing gratitude, especially to God for the things received. And so the way Boaz is expressing this gratitude is by saying, you know what? I'm simply trusting in God's providence that he's actually going to provide enough for me that I don't have to use human understanding, intuition, judgment making to say, I, I'm sorry, just like a couple years ago, people were dying and starving, so I'm not going to let anyone else have any amount of my food. And instead, Boaz is saying, I'm going to trust God and express gratitude by following the things he has called me to follow, by living the way he has called me to live. As a result, in chapter 2 of Ruth, Ruth, an immigrant widow who you could also say could be perceivably an orphan, was able to glean and sustain herself and survive and also sustain her mother-in-law, Naomi. But then chapter 3 happens. And the plot thickens. And despite maybe not having all the backstory in the world about these women, we know a little bit about their characters. They're obviously pretty tough. They're pretty bold. They're willing to try to eke out a, sustain, a subsistence in a world that maybe doesn't have their best intentions in mind. There's all these things that Naomi says to Ruth about being careful gleaning, about sticking in the areas that Boaz said to stay, about staying with the women that are Boaz's gleaning women just for safety, because despite all this stuff, what we read in the story, it is still a dangerous time to be an immigrant widow in Bethlehem. It is a scary time for Ruth, and that shows that she has some courage and bravery, that she's fiercely loyal to Naomi, but she also must be a person that has some faith, because it seems, despite her circumstances, she has some hope. She's operating as a person that has hope that her situation might get better. And the plot thickens because there's this talk with Naomi about this guy named Boaz and this title, Redeemer. Some translations it says kinsman. Other translations it says other titles, but basically this person that by law and by culture is able to actually legally, with actual cultural status, change the future for Ruth and for Naomi. So the plot thickens. As we read in chapter 3, Naomi seems to be aware of the status, and she seems to be looking at her daughter-in-law and saying, you know what? My daughter-in-law's pretty cute. Get dressed, bathe, put on perfume. I don't think that's accidental. 
I don't think that's just sort of like a, oh, it'd be nice if you looked your best and you didn't smell bad because you were sweating in the fields all day and you weren't covered in muck and mire. There's obviously some intent in this chapter. Naomi wants Ruth to be noticed. What's interesting about this concept of being a redeemer is that it doesn't just happen through marriage, that basically there is this understanding that the Kingsman Redeemer could just also serve as protector of needy family members. But it seems clear as we read in this chapter that the intent would be for Ruth to be noticed by Boaz. So in Ruth chapter 3, we see that they're making note of where Boaz is going to lay down for the night. Now just before we continue reading in verse 7, just ponder this scheme in your head. Imagine what they must be thinking. Imagine what Ruth must be thinking. She's an unmarried widow where she lives in a very much a man's world and where there's some dire consequences for being perceived as an adulteress because that's the picture that could be foreseen. That's what could definitely be seen if someone catches her doing nothing technically but something that actually has legal ramifications. So she is putting it all on the line with her mother-in-law's guidance, because her mother-in-law, being a mother, has some intuition. And maybe she has perceived some things about Boaz, but still there is great risk involved in this plan, this plan that involves some very scandalous grace. So continuing in verse 7, Boaz ate and drank, and it's very interesting because Naomi said, wait, wait until after he eats and drinks, because he's going to be in a good mood. Right? It's just honest, right? He's going to be a little bit more agreeable. And he was in a good mood. Hey, look it. It even says that right there. He went over to lie down by the edge of the grain pile. Then she quietly approached, uncovered his legs, and lay down. During the middle of the night, the man shuddered and turned over, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. There's a lot going on here, folks. There is a lot going on. There is some intent. There is some possibility. There's this, I'll say it in the form of a joke because there are still children in the sanctuary right now. What are the funkiest animals on the barnyard? The brown chicken, brown cow. There is the, yeah, I said it. Did you think that was really funny? Shelby, are you about to die? There is very much the possibility that something could happen. She is laying there next to a man. She has uncovered his feet. And maybe that, are you all right? Are you recovered? Do you not expecting that? She's, okay, she, we'll wait for you to recover. There very much could be some less, uh, some less desirable activities and actions happening. There very much could be some, uh, some seedy engagements that could happen at night in the dark when, when one is laying down in a bed. There very much could be some scandalous engagement. And so Naomi is aware that this is a possibility, and I would have to assume that Ruth is also aware that this is also a possibility. But we'll continue reading and see what happens, because there is another half to this story. There are two people involved. Ruth is making her intentions known. She is acting very boldly in a way that can be very per- perceived as very scandalous. 
And Boaz is reacting. And his initial reaction is, uh, who are you? And it wasn't brown chicken, brown cow. It wasn't, that wasn't his initial response. He simply said, who are you? And she replied, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread out your robe over your servant because you are a redeemer. Now, this, this initial response by Ruth is loaded. Loaded full of significance and symbolism. What she is doing is coming to put herself under his protection as the person appointed by the divine law to be her protector. So, thus by faith, she must apply, we must apply this to ourselves and understand that what she's doing is similar to what we do with salvation. As we come before our Savior Jesus, who basically is our kinsman, our redeemer, asking him to redeem us, to come under his wing. And we are invited to do so. Ruth kind of invited herself. And she is asking her redeemer to place this corner of his cloak over her to be an actual symbol of taking her under his wing, of becoming her redeemer. Ruth's request could simply be interpreted as a request for protection, but it could also be perceived as a request for marriage, almost, almost as if a marriage proposal was being extended by Ruth. Continuing on, he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Now, this isn't like a great pickup line, so I think we start to see where the story is going, that maybe it's going to be less scandalous than initially perceived to be. You have acted even more faithfully than you did at first. You, aren't go you, aren't, you haven't gone after rich or young, poor young men. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you everything you are asking. Indeed, my people, all who are at the gate, know that you are a woman of worth. Now, although it's certainly true that I am a redeemer, there is a redeemer who is close, a closer relative than I. Stay the night, and in the morning, if he'll redeem you, good, let him redeem. But he, if he doesn't want to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I myself will redeem you. Lie down until morning. What's interesting to me is Boaz could have been a really shady guy. Boaz could have said, I have a really young, attractive woman in my bed. And he could have done a whole lot of other things, but instead, he decided to be the same guy that we saw in chapter 2. He decided to be faithful, righteous, to be this good man who wasn't going to take advantage of a situation for his own selfish gain. And because of Ruth's boldness, because of her putting herself in this situation that was very scandalous, she is now being extended the opportunity to be redeemed. But Boaz is such a, good, such a good guy that he says, you know what, we're following the rules to a T. There's actually a guy that's even closer in relation to you. He's really your kinsman. He's really your redeemer. We need to check with him first. We need to make sure he doesn't want to be functioning in that capacity to be your redeemer. So he says, just lay down, and in the morning, we'll figure it out. And all that happens, from what we can tell, perceivably, is that they just sleep. So she lay at his feet in verse 14 until morning. Then she got up before one person could recognize another. For he had said, no one should know that the woman came to the threshing floor. Because that could be very scandalous if someone saw that. He said, bring the cloak that you have on and hold it. She held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and placed it upon her. Then she went into the town. She came to her mother-in-law who said, how are you, my daughter? So Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me six measures of barley, for he said to me, 
Don't go away empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Sit tight, my daughter, Naomi replied, until you know how it turns out. The man won't rest until he resolves the matter today. Unlike Jesus redeeming us, Boaz makes a point to say that she is this loyal, worthy, faithful person that is of worth. That she is actually in some way, shape, or form earned this opportunity for redemption from Boaz or from this other kinsman that Boaz is going to talk to. And it's because she was bold. So bold, in fact, that she opened herself up for all sorts of controversy and scandal. She put herself at the mercy of this man, Boaz, who could have been a little bit sleazier. And there again, I just wish we had like seven chapters on Ruth and who she was and know all about her. And then like seven more chapters on Boaz so that this wouldn't be so surprising. Like, what is going on? Why are these people doing these sorts of things? We could have understood trends and understood who these characters were. But we take this at face value to understand that Ruth was a really bold woman that she made some very bold, hard decisions that were very perceivably scandalous, that could have opened up herself for all sorts of issues. And that, in return, Boaz remained righteous, even possibly in the face of some serious temptation. He remained righteous and faithful, and he continues to be this generous person to Ruth. It's probably important to note that Boaz didn't ask for any of this. Boaz didn't ask for an immigrant woman who was a widow to come to his field. He didn't ask for her to be the person gleaning in his field. He didn't ask for her to come and kind of catch him unawares on the threshing floor. But yet he responds full of thanksgiving, being incredibly generous, sending her home with more than enough food, enough to even bring home to her mother-in-law. At the end of chapter 3, the stage is set. The conclusion of this story is imminent. We will see how God can weave his redemptive work through the faithfulness of these, his people, even if and when they do things that make us scratch our heads. It would be easy to critique this story and say, Ruth, it would have been easier not to be scandalous or to do it in the light of day or just simply approach him in, in a certain way. It would be really easy to say, well, Boaz, maybe you should have done it this way or that way. But what we read in this story is the story of people dealing with fairly normal life circumstances and how God is still faithful through it all to weave, to weave his redemptive work through this story. And we're continuing to understand that these two, despite minimal character development, are examples of boldness and righteousness. Ruth was bold, Boaz was righteous, and the result is that redemptive work flowed freely, starting the process of righting wrongs, healing wounds, and transforming despair into hope. At the end of this chapter, you can tell Naomi is even more optimistic than she initially was. She says, the man won't rest until he resolves the matter today. She is hopeful. She is aware that maybe after all of the potential scandal and everything that could have happened on the threshing floor, that this was a good plan because God made it so. Ruth was bold, willing to take risks, to act innovatively. She had confidence or courage to do things that were pretty dicey for a woman to do in that time, in that, in that culture, which is why Ruth is such a significant heroine in this story. 
It took boldness to have a midnight meetup with a man she hardly knew, ill-intentioned or not. This decision was scandalous, to say the least. Boaz, being righteous, was a person living according to God's will, and he proves that time and time again to be righteous and just, following God's direction in everything he does, not taking advantage of her situation or her vulnerable position, but instead doing what was right once again. See, Boaz... Boaz is how we're going to focus on the rest of this sermon because next week we're going to talk about just how important Ruth is, not just to this book, but to the story of this book, the story of our salvation, the story of who Jesus is and what Christmas is about. If you've already read it, I'm not going to give spoilers if you haven't, but it's a four-chapter book. Next week we're in chapter four. But these two are the heroes of their own story. We'll wrap up this mini-series focusing on just how much of an Old Testament heroine Ruth really is because of her boldness. But this week, particularly with this national holiday on the horizon, I would like to focus on Boaz and ponder the idea of thanksgiving, the expression of gratitude, especially to God. All we know about Boaz is how good he is. His life was a perfect example of one that was full of thanksgiving. He followed God's law, being under the old covenant, but we see that beyond that, he made good decisions. Even when he had curveballs thrown his way, even when young women would come perfumed and bathed, looking their best, he still was able to make good decisions, decisions that led to redemptive work it is clear that he wasn't just going through the motions, that he wasn't just following the rules, but that he truly believed in God's providence for his life. Even with this famine in recent history, he was freely giving from the abundance of his harvest because that's what he saw it as. He saw it as an, abun an abundance. He would give six more measures of barley after this episode that he easily could have said, um, I'm sorry, I don't like to be around that type of woman. I'm sorry, that's not how I conduct business. Instead, he sees all that he has as given to him by God. And out of the abundance of that blessing, he freely offers to those less fortunate. Even with the scandalous behavior of this young woman, he chose to be an instrument for redemption within her life even though he could have so easily said no, rebuking her advances. And once again, we are reminded, even though he did not ask for any of this to happen, he trusted that God would provide enough. That even though he was generous with all he had, he still had more he could give. And because of a woman named Ruth's boldness, God's providence was proven. So the question for us this morning, church, is do we trust God that much with the things that we have? Or do we let selfishness and greed set the tone far too often? Now, I haven't been on the planet forever. I hear jokes a lot about, oh, that was before you were born, Pastor. And like, probably was. Lots of stuff happened before I was born, and that's okay. 
But since I've been alive, I've seen this, this greed creep in, creep into our lives in lots of different ways. But the most notable happens this week, and it gets crazier and crazier every year. And for the past couple years, I've shown videos, but I decided not to look for them because, honestly, it's a little disheartening. But Black Friday doesn't start on Friday anymore. It starts on Thursday, which is Thanksgiving. And Black Friday is significant not because we're extra greedy or whatever, but because it is this national celebration of sorts for greed. And, and hear me, though, church, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with bargain shopping. That's what I do most of the time. But it gets a little dicey when you're hunting for a bargain and you're okay with punching another human being. There is literally a Black uh, Friday death count website. People die on Black Friday. I'm not, it's like, it's, you could sort of laugh at that, but it's kind of sad. People literally kill each other over Xboxes. People literally harm each other, send each other to the hospital over whatever the deal of that day is. And that's maybe a little beyond simply bargain shopping in my most humble of opinions. That maybe is not being thankful or really being a person that wants to, to practice thanksgiving to God. Black Friday is an opportunity to practice greed if we choose to do so. But Thanksgiving is the opportunity to do just that, practice Thanksgiving. See, on one day, we're given the opportunity to focus on all the great things God has given us. To say, thank you so much, God. I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to be a good steward. I'm even going to give back out of the abundance, because you have actually given me abundance, even if I don't think it looks like I have an abundance. But then Black Friday comes around, and it's an opportunity for us to say, I don't have that, and I want it. I don't have that, and I want that. And it's a time to focus on what we don't have, and to lull ourselves into the belief that we need it so badly that we would be willing to do bodily harm to another human being, for a thing at a Walmart. There is one video in particular that most irked me, and all of this is on YouTube. Don't get sucked into the YouTube wormhole too deep, though. There was one year where a pregnant woman was at the front of the line and got trampled. People just completely stampeded over her in a Walmart because of a Black Friday deal. The doors open, she hit the ground, and people continued to run over top of her. They had to call EMTs and paramedics. She was actually in very bad shape because she just got kicked and kneed and stomped over top of because people really wanted whatever it was that year that they wanted so badly. There's something crazy that can happen where one day we say, thank you, God, for everything you've given me, and the next day we're literally stomping over a pregnant woman for a thing. Once again, I'm a bargain shopper. Don't hear this as saying, don't ever bargain shop. That's, that's not what I'm saying. You should be good stewards with the things you have. Find good deals. My wife, literally every time I actually use a, a coupon and I come home and say, I use the coupon, it's like, we should have a mini celebration because I'm not good with coupons and I just always forget. She'll literally give me a booklet full of coupons. She's like, did you use all the coupons? I'm like, oh, sorry. And so whenever I do, it's cause for celebration. It's like, hooray, you actually use the coupons because I just forget and stuff like that. 
But this season, church, and particularly reflecting on this story, is an opportunity for us to really evaluate how we choose to live. Are we going to choose to show gratitude? Or are we going to choose to be greedy, holding on to our worldly possessions all the more tightly? See, Boaz was given that choice. He didn't ask for the things that he was given, situationally speaking. But he chose to, to be a guy that was full of thanksgiving. Following God's ordinance. Saying, yes, I will give even more over the abundance that you have given me, God. It's simple to figure out how we're going to choose to live. It's, it's very easy. It's very basic. And Jesus knew it because he talked about it more than just about anything. But if you want to know whether you're someone that extends gratitude or thanksgiving to God, then just look at your bank account. Take a look. What, what picture does it paint? And maybe you could say to me, that's not fair. But I'm not the one that made up those rules. God made it very clear that the things we spend money on and how we use our wealth and possessions very clearly shows how much we care about him because he's the one that gave us that stuff to begin with. He seems very interested in how we use the wealth and worldly possessions he has blessed us with. And he would love for us to be like Boaz. It's as if how we use these things, this money, this resource, wealth that we have is a reflection of what our faith in him really looks like. For Boaz, he trusted God. He trusted God's providence. He knew that he could give all this wheat away and he would never outgive God, that God would still provide enough for his needs. Jesus reiterates it in the Gospels, talking about money more than almost any other topic. The Bible is full of incredible stories where people show that they're the faithful people of God and it's proven by how they use the things God gives them. From the very first time, the word tithe is brought up. And I'm going to rattle off some scripture. It's on the back of your bulletin. It won't be on the screen. In Genesis 14, 19 through 20, to, to men like Jacob and Moses, to the establishment of the Old Covenant, we see that God wants his people to trust that he will provide enough even if you give some of what you have away and tithe it back to him, it shows how much you trust and how much faith you have in him because that's what it is, a matter of faith, of spiritual maturity. In Malachi 3, 10 through 12, there are people struggling with this idea and it says that you can't outgive God. God talks about storehouses overflowing, that there is no way you could outgive God's providence or out-trust that you really do have an abundance, and he will provide for you. In Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus says, when you give, don't do it for credit, but remember, God sees, and that you will be blessed for it. What you spend your money, time, and resources on shows what you care about. And this week is a big deal as far as spending money is concerned. In this story, we see that Boaz cared about others because literally of how he spent his resources on them. I mean, there wasn't necessarily United States dollar bills in a wallet in Boaz's back pocket. But harvest 
crops, resources. That was basically a currency unto itself. And he was very generous with it. He had quite the attitude of thanksgiving as a result. But church, for us, Black Friday is coming. And historically, it's a day where so many prove that they care about themselves more than they do others. So what will it be? Church, how will you live? Will you choose to try to be like Boaz or like Ruth? People that are faithful to God, trusting in Him, doing things that kind of don't make sense to the human understanding of how we should act and live our lives, but instead putting God first and trusting in Him, putting our faith in Him, even with things as personal as finances. Would we, would we choose church this season in particular, but also just with our lives to be a part of His redemptive work on this planet as a result? Because that's what God calls for us to do, to be faithful, to follow his leading, to take his word very seriously, and to live it out. When we do those sorts of things, as we see evidenced by this story, God's redemptive work spreads. It is extended to others. Not only is our own life made better for it, those around us can experience that goodness, that grace, that redemption as well. This world is in desperate need of God's redemptive work, and we are privileged to be given the opportunity or invitation to be part of that. That is something significant. So this week, church, I would ask you to, uh, to read Ruth chapter 3 again, and if you, want, if you want to spoil the end of the story, read chapter 4 too. It's a short book. But come next week and ask yourselves these tough questions of what does it mean to be a person that lives a life of thanksgiving? What does it mean to be a good steward with the blessings God has given you? What does it look like to be a part of God's redemptive work? Because this isn't a thing that we answer on a one Sunday and then we go home and we're done and figured out the mysteries of God sort of a thing. This is a thing that takes time and practice. This is what the story of Ruth doesn't show us, that Boaz had spent a long time, almost certainly a long portion of his life, working on being this righteous human being. So that when the time came and Ruth decided to be so bold, so scandalous, that redemption was a possibility. Redemption could occur. Because one was righteous, a good steward, full of thanksgiving, and the other was bold, loyal, willing to take risks. And at the end, redemption took place. Let's pray this morning, church. God, we thank you for these stories. We thank you for stories in general. Stories that teach us a little bit about who you are. Stories that teach us what it looks like to deal with the things of this world. Stories that show us how you care about our situations how you are mindful of the plights that we are in, how you actually have given us an abundance, how you have blessed us with things that sometimes we take for granted, things that sometimes we overlook and instead tend to focus on things we don't have. God, as Thanksgiving approaches, would we truly have a spirit of thankfulness, have a heart of thanksgiving? Would we truly 
thank you for the things that we have. Oh, what's more, God, would we be bold enough like Ruth and brave enough to be part of that redemptive work that you're calling us to be a part of by following the things you have called us to follow in your book, in your, book, in your word. God, would we also be inspired, even though the story is perhaps slightly ordinary, not full of seas parting or giants being killed or giant towers or, or anything particularly supernatural, but would we be inspired by how people can be faithful in normal life and God's incredible redemptive work can take place and spread and not just affect those in that time and place, but affect generations to come as well. Because when we are faithful, you can weave your redemptive work through the stories of our lives. Would we be so bold and so brave and so full of thankfulness that we could take part? God, we thank you for who you are and what you have given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song, church, and then after.